North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning back to another episode of Dr. Lowe Radio. I am your host, Dr. Lauren Noel, naturopathic doctor, and thanks again for the continued support. We have a topic tonight that I get really geeked out about. It's something that I'm just fascinated with, and it probably creeps people out sometimes, but I don't care because it's so important to our health, and that is our poop. It's our digestion, and in the naturopathic medicine world, this is really the center of the universe. This is really where it's at. So tonight is all about digestive health, and we have uh, an amazing expert on the show, Dr. Allison Seebecker, back on again by popular demand. So it's great to have her on, and uh, I'm just excited just to jump into it. And uh, let me read you guys Dr. Seebecker's bio. And actually, first off, I just want to give you guys a couple of announcements um, there's a conference coming up in Portland, Oregon pretty soon, and I'll have Dr. Seebecker tell us a little bit more about that, but that's on small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and that's a condition that we talked about the last time she was on the show, and for a lot of people who have digestive problems, that's actually what's going on with them, and it's commonly misdiagnosed, and they go for years and years and years without actually getting a solution to their problems. So she'll tell us a little bit more about this conference coming up, but definitely check that out in Portland, especially for you um, health professionals. It will be a, a big asset to your practice. Uh, let's see here. If you guys are not a fan of the Facebook page, check me out, facebook.com slash Dr. Lowe, sorry, Dr. Lowe Noel, and twitter.com slash Dr. Lauren Noel. And I am in my new practice, Shine Natural Medicine. Check, check us out, shinenaturalmedicine.com. I work with patients locally here in San Diego and all over the country. So if you are frustrated, you're not feeling well, you feel like you're speaking a different language than your doctor, you have options. And I would love to work with you and get you feeling better. So please check me out. For tonight's show, Allison C. Becker, she's back on. She's worked in the nutritional field since 1988 and is a 2005 graduate of the National College of Natural Medicine, where I went to school as well. It's the coolest school ever. She earned her doctorate in naturopathic medicine and her master's in oriental medicine. In 2005 and 2013, she received the, the Best in Naturopathy Award from the Townsend Letter for her articles, Traditional Bone Broth in Modern Health and Disease, and Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth, Often Overlooked Cause of IBS. After practicing primary care, functional endocrinology, and facial rejuvenation acupuncture, she took a sabbatical to study small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Currently, Dr. C. Becker is instructor for advanced gastroenterology at NCNM in Portland, Oregon, where she specializes in the treatment of SIBO at the NCNM clinic. She is the author of the educational website SIBOinfo.org and teaches continuing education classes for physicians and is writing a book synthesizing the SIBO data into one source. Dr. Seebecker, thank you so much for being back on the show. Welcome to Dr. Low Radio. Hi, Lauren. Good to be here. Hi. It's good to, you know, and it's cool because the last time you were on the show, I hadn't actually met you in person, so now I get to see your, your shining face in my mind. Me too, with you. It was wonderful <laughs> meeting you. <laughs> it was fun geeking out with you at dinner while we're eating and talking about, you know, what happens after we eat. <laughs> yeah, that was such a fun symposium, the Ancestral Health Symposium. I loved attending that. That was great. Wasn't it great? Are you going to be going to the next one coming up? I don't know. Maybe I will. It was it was really cool. There was just an overwhelming amount of classes to listen to. I It was almost too much, really. Yeah, I know, right? I get total ADD at conferences like that. I want to go to all of the classes, and sometimes it just makes me want to just take a nap. It's too many options. It's <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before I forget, tell us a little bit about the conference coming up. I know this is a big event that's on the horizon. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm really, really excited about it. Um, a little over a year ago, my practice partner, um, Dr. Sternberg Lewis, and myself decided we wanted to put on a SIBO symposium. And um, so I called some of the, some of the big wigs in the field, and I'm so thrilled. We have Dr. Mark Pimentel coming and Dr. Leonard Weinstock, and Dr. Pimentel is the leading researcher in SIBO. And in the last couple of years, he has 
discovered so many amazing things. He's he's just like I mean I think at his at his at the last big gastroenterology conference he had like eleven research papers to present. He's just going bonkers, and it's fascinating. And he's going to present all this information to us at the conference. Um, some of it is I'll just give you some of the highlights. Um, he has now mapped the small intestine uh, microbiome uh, through mm-hmm. DNA methods. No one has known what what really is down there because it's a really hard place to reach. And um, everybody just knows about the large intestine um, flora. But now we're going to hear finally about the small intestine flora. And I, I said this to you in an email, but he um, he has said that the small intestine and large intestine microbiome are so very different from each other within the same person that, in fact, the large intestine bacteria of a human is closer to a mouse uh, bacteria in, in the mouse stool than it is to the human's own small intestine flora. Completely different microbiome. So he's it's so incredible. So he's going to come teach us about that, and he's also going to tell us all about, he's been doing lots of work on post-infectious IBS, which he says is none other than SIBO, and he's going to explain it. It's a lot of mechanisms of action, details. There's an autoimmune link in there. Um, just some fascinating information. He's going to tell us about uh, methane gas and hydrogen sulfide gas and how they link up with the symptoms, how best to treat for them, how best to test for them. And really on and on it goes. It's, it's so thrilling. I'm going to be learning along with everyone else who's sitting there. You know, I do my best to keep up on all the research papers, but there's nothing like hearing the person who does the research speak it out and tell you. You know, the research papers are pretty dry, but when someone speaks, they can really explain it. So I am just like chomping at the bit for this conference, you know. <laughs> and something that, something I, I wanted to mention for any of your listeners is that you don't actually have to come to Portland to take the seminar. It's available by live webinar. And, um, and I think December 15th is the next date they keep going in increments, price increases, you know, early, early bird special, then early mm-hmm. special. So we've got December 15th is our next date when the um, price will rise. But um, you, for people who want to take the webinar, they should register ahead of time because when you buy the webinar afterwards, it's actually a little bit more expensive. Mm. So um, some people should register now. And, and just to highlight some of the things that Dr. Weintock is going to talk about, he's going to tell us all about LDN, which is um, low-dose naltroxone. It's a, a favorite medicine used by naturopaths for um, inflammation and autoimmune disease. But it also has a, a prokinetic activity, which means it moves, uh, moves the small intestine motility, helps the mm. motility there. And um, it's a very... Uh, pretty safe and naturopathic sort of medicine, and he's going to give us a whole lecture just on that, plus tell us all about um, how SIBO is related to other diseases and disorders besides IBS. Most people think of it, it's, you know, SIBO and IBS are very closely related. Sometimes they're the same thing. And he's going to tell us about some of the other conditions like restless leg syndrome and acne rosacea. He's done quite a lot of studies on that. Very, very interesting because people with those conditions, if they have SIBO and they treat their SIBO, that their other condition, like their acne rosacea, often improves dramatically. I, I've seen many, many patients like that, and it's a wonderful thing, especially when, with something like that where it's visible for the whole world to see. It's wonderful when that can clear up. What's so the mechanism? To... I'm, I'm curious, just to jump in, what's the mechanism with the restless leg syndrome and SIBO? That is wild. You know, people don't know. It's all theory. Um, Mm-hmm. Restless legs has been very much associated with anemia, and uh, SIBO can cause anemia, so that's one link that could be there, mm-hmm. but but we just don't know. Um, same with rosacea. I mean, we know that digestive disorders are often linked with skin problems, but exactly how is it, you know, is it leaky gut in general? What is it really? Um, you know, is it auto-intoxication? We don't, we don't know. Same thing with interstitial cystitis. Um, that's another one we've done quite a bit of research on. Interstitial cystitis is often called IBS of the bladder. Uh, it's like irritable bladder, and it's mm-hmm. um, very unpleasant for the people who suffer from it. And once again, we're not so sure. There's theories about um, certain gases, like possibly the hydrogen sulfide gas, if that's involved with someone's SIBO, that might be affecting the detrusor muscle 
in the bladder. Um, but it's all theory at this point. It's, you know, we have so much more work to do in figuring out these mysterious gastrointestinal disorders like SIBO, and there's so many others. And I'm just so pleased that these devoted researchers have found so much out. That's why I'm so thrilled about the conference to learn. And also, just a few more things is that I'm also going to have uh, myself and Dr. Sandberg Bruce are going to speak. We're going to talk about diet and herbal antibiotics. Um, and all, all of the speakers are going to go over how they test and treat SIBO, which I think is going to be a phenomenal thing for people to hear and any physicians listening as well, to, to know how people who are dealing with this day in, day out, what they do, how they treat it. Mm. So it's going to be great. So is this something that's geared more towards health professionals or can just the average person log on and, and watch this and get something of value that they can take away? Definitely. It's for everybody. I mean, everybody's invited. Everybody's welcome. Um, it's going to be geared more towards the the treating physician mm-hmm. and continuing education. Credits are available for, anyone, for any physicians who want to attend or health practitioners. But that doesn't mean the general public shouldn't attend. We, You know, I think we always try, most all of us, uh, who teach try to not use too much jargon. So, I mean, mm-hmm. there might be some things that are above people's heads for sure, but it, it's really meant for everyone. Everyone should come and listen because there's nothing better than educate, educating oneself on one's disorder. You know, that is so, so empowering. So I encourage everyone to come. Absolutely. So for all you guys listening, I will put a link to that conference. If you go to drlaurennoel.com and click on the uh, the radio link, I'll put a, a link there underneath the show notes so you can go and check that out and get registered before the uh, procrastinator special. So you can get that lower lower rate for that. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's yeah. so funny. I've never organized a symposium before or a conference before, but what I hear from everybody who has organized it is that most people register within the week beforehand. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a human condition, right? <laughs> That's what we do. That's it. We're all so busy. It's like, oh, is this thing happening? Yeah, I think I'll go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to jump into tonight's content. I have a lot of questions from um, from Facebook and from um, just patients, actually, who wanted to ask some questions for the show. So I'm excited for that. Um, so I'm just going to jump into some questions and just kind of see how it naturally, you know, progresses. Um, does that sound good? That sounds great. Okay, great. So um, the first question I have is um, – from an anonymous person. She wants to know, is, is fasting uh, periodic, is it good to fast periodically for digestion? What are your thoughts on that? How often? You know, why is this good? Just what are your thoughts on, on all that? Okay, I'm of two minds on the subject. On the mm-hmm. one hand, my, my first thought is yes. Um, fasting is good for digestion. It gives digestion a rest. It allows some detoxification to occur. Um, it it allows some bacteria to die if you are having some sort of bacterial overgrowth, also yeast. Microbes can start to die. Parasites less so. They seem to be quite a bit more tenacious. Um, but so in that respect, I think it is good. And how often really would be completely individual. Um, some people fast for one day a week, um, every week. There are people who do that. Um, other people do it seasonally, you know, and maybe even for a few days. My, my, my other mind on it is there are so many naturopaths and alternative practitioners who say, who are, you know, who had previously been greatly in support of fasting, but who say that people are exposed to so much toxicity in the world today that they never were before, pesticides and xenoestrogens and all these things, um, which store in our fat. When we fast, out they come, out of, our, out of our fat into our blood, and that it can make a person rather sick, too sick, to fast, that fasting might not be the, the best option for everyone anymore due to the toxicity of the world. And so I, I feel both ways, and I think it probably depends on the individual, you know, how sensitive they are and um, how much toxins they've been exposed to, just how well they process it out. So I suppose what a person could do if they're interested in fasting is try it, and if it was too intense, you know, then stop it and try more subtle methods or cleansing through herbals and, and other meats where you're still eating a little bit. And maybe eventually then you can work up to fasting. Okay, got it. Awesome. I'm sure, okay, here's I'm sure you have lots of thoughts on that, Dr. Lowe, yourself. I'm a huge fan of fasting, but I, you know, I think it goes back to uh, blood sugar regulation. I think if someone has, you know, raging blood sugar problems, I, I personally think it's better to keep blood sugar more regulated. But, but taking that, that load off of the gut and allowing you to, you know, just, I mean, it, like you said, it helps with certain bacteria to die. 
Um, it can help to heal the gut if you're continually exposed to, um, you know, inflammation from what you're eating. So I think fasting can be really, really great. And it's one of those old school, you know, healing kind of techniques that naturopathic doctors have been doing for many, many years. So I'm, and it's going back to, you know, um, uh, you know, using the least invasive kinds of procedures, right? Just allowing the body just to do what it does best. So, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm a fan. Simple brilliance in it, but just like you said, there's like a pro and a con. The con could be the blood sugar, uh, from what you said, and the pro is that it certainly does heal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's see. Go on to the next question here. This is uh, from. Uh, let's see. This is from Jenna. She wants to know um, questions about excessive gas, <laughs> and um, she has a really good diet but she uh, finds that, you know, she just tends to get gas and doesn't know if this is something that is from what she's eating or um, just maybe some, some imbalance in her flora. She wonders if maybe she's having too much fiber. Just what are your thoughts with excessive gas and uh, what are some, some possible tips for people? Sure. Okay, so mostly for, for most people, the gas is going to be there in the intestines because the bacteria are producing it. Now, yeast can produce gas, too, uh, but predominantly they produce carbon dioxide. And um, I, I was really interested in this. I was wondering, could carbon dioxide really be a factor in, in flatulence and bloating? And I was able to find a few research articles that actually tested this out and showed that since carbon dioxide is a normal physiological gas for humans, in fact, it's absorbed very, very quickly and easily into our body. Um, out of the intestines. And so that doesn't seem to be a main contributor. So I don't think yeast is a major contributor. I think it's really more so bacteria as a major contributor to intestinal gas. So the gas, um, the bacteria and then the gas that they make could be either in the small intestine or the large intestine. And that's where SIBO comes into play. If it's it's SIBO, you know, you can get a test and find out. It's a little harder to deal with. If If it's not SIBO and it's in the large intestine, then it could be it could be a bacterial overgrowth of bacteria that produce gas because not all bacteria produce gas. This is very, very interesting to me. It took me years to figure this out. But typically the uh, bacteria that we consider probiotics, most of them, uh, not all of them, but most of them don't produce gas. They produce acid. Um, but other bacteria can then take those acids they produce and turn them into gas. So... Um, so it could be too much bacteria, or it, it could also be um, just a different, a, a different balance of bacteria. So maybe it's just, it's not like you overall have too much bacteria. It's just that you have more, relatively, of the bacteria that produce gas and less of the ones that don't. Um, so that's really, that, I mean, I hope I'm not getting too geeky on this, but so, but so <laughs> for sure... Um, you know, it's, I think it's mostly about bacteria. And then her question about the fiber is really good because bacteria eat, what they eat are fiber. And fiber is a huge category of foods. It includes like pectin and um, seaweeds and all these, all these things as well as um, things that we think of as fiber like oat bran and things like that. And that's what feeds bacteria. Same with um, oligosaccharides, so short, short little sugars that are in beans and various fruits and vegetables. It's going to be all plant foods that feed the bacteria their fiber. And that's what they eat, and then they're going to make the gas. So changing the diet to have less fiber would very much help with gas. Also, um, what's, uh, some foods that are famous for causing gas are cruciferous vegetables, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, um, even kale, and um, onions and garlic. And so some simple things a person could do is just decrease some of those foods that have a lot of oligosaccharides or fiber to feed the bacteria and see if that doesn't help. For a lot of people, that's how they manage it. They go, oh, well, I, you know, I know when I eat this food, I get gas. Um, so a good diet to look at for, for identifying those foods is the low FODMAP diet. And um, a person can Google that and, and find some options of how to decrease those bacterial feeding foods <laughs> and mm-hmm. see if that helps. Mm-hmm. Okay, Awesome. Is, uh, have, you, have you incorporated using more of a low FODMAP diet with patients and seen some, some beneficial results with that? Yes. My, my absolute favorite thing to do is to combine the specific carbohydrate diet 
with the low FODMAP diet. And of course, this is for my SIBO patients. Um, the low FODMAP diet by itself isn't, isn't formulated specifically for SIBO. It needs to be modified a little bit. Um, it needs to take out, it, it allows gluten-free grains and some starch and some, some sugars. And those need to be taken out for people with SIBO. But if the problem isn't SIBO, it's just in the large intestine, the normal, just regular old low FODMAP diet is really great. I've seen really good benefit from it. I found that the specific carbohydrate diet, uh, what Elaine Gottschall, the formulator of the most recent version, what she didn't know about was all these various components in fruits and vegetables that can feed bacteria. And so she just took out the starchy tubers and said, um, starchy vegetables, and said all the rest of fruits and vegetables are okay. And what the FODMAP diet has done is analyzed in a lab those fruits and vegetables and some other foods as well to figure out how much they feed bacteria, how gas-producing are they, actually. And so it's very helpful to sort of get a guide from that. And what I've noticed is um, always there's this individuality with people. So always there's someone who can eat a food that's on the high FODMAP, meaning that it may produce a lot of gas. They can eat it and not have any symptoms and the next person couldn't, but then the next person can eat something that the other person couldn't. So you always, you always have to experiment, and you just need to use these diets and all their, their food listings as a guide, not as a Bible, you know, because you have to believe mm -hmm. your own body, and people can get kind of wrapped up in, um, in the specifics of it. And actually, there's one other thing I wanted to mention in answer to the general question about bacteria-producing gas, and it, it, it speaks to this individuality. Um, in all my research, what I've, what I've come to learn is that bacteria, they're just like humans. They have food preferences. You know how some people like, like dark meat of chicken and some people like white meat. You know, some people like this food and some people don't. That's the same with bacteria. They're all adapted to eat different foods. And I really think that's, that's the root cause of a lot of this individuality. There are other reasons, too. There's enzymes and transporters and all these other things that can affect digestibility of foods. But I think this bacterial food preference is one of them. So, you know, that's why a person might be able to eat one type of fibrous food and not get gas, but then they eat another type of fibrous food and they do get gas. And they think, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. I think it's just the food the bacteria that live in them are adapted for. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And it's, it's that biochemical individuality. I love that. Nobody is exactly the same. It's not cookie-cutter medicine. It's really listening to the patient's symptoms and, and tailoring the diet based on that. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. So let's bring it to another question. This is from Laura, and she said, I recently did a juice cleanse for five days, and I noticed that my abdomen was finally completely flat, and I felt so good. After about a week of adding in foods, even low-carb foods, I noticed I started to get really bloated. I'd love to know what this might mean and what I might try. I'd like to have a flat stomach and eat real foods. Yes, the, the ultimate flat stomach that all ladies want. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so just as we've been talking about, it could be in the small intestine, it could be in the large intestine. Um, I think it would be a great idea to get tested for SIBO. Um, and, and the test can be run through her doctor. Uh, it's called the lactulose breath test. Um, and we've talked about it on the other show, but just very briefly, um, it is a challenge test, so it can make symptoms worse afterwards. But hopefully, you know, you're working with your doctor and you'll get treatment soon. Um, not everybody gets worse after the test, but they can. And also on my website, underneath resources handouts, I have um, SIBO symptomatic relief suggestion handout that um, there are things you can do if the test does make you worse. You can look at that uh, handout for some help. But um, get tested and find out if you have SIBO or not. Um, it, it would be very likely after if, if the juice fast really helped and then afterwards the bloating came back. That would be really one of my number one thoughts, the SIBO. If there isn't SIBO, then we go down to the large intestine and we think there's some sort of dysbiosis in the large intestine, as we just talked about, you know, either um, too much or just the too many um, gas-producing, not overall too many, but just too many gas-producing bacteria. And then what, really what you do, you do low FODMAP diet, um, you do probiotics. Once again, you can also do the same sort of treatments you do for SIBO, herbal antibiotics and things like that, just to try and shift things around. Um, and um, to figure out what's going on on the large intestine, large intestine, that's where you do stool testing. There are many labs that offer stool testing to assess what's happening there with the bacteria, parasites, and yeast. So um, I, I would go and get testing and try and figure it out. It's, 
very frustrating when you have a low-carb diet and you're still bloated. And that goes back to the question you asked, Lauren. Um, I've seen that a lot. I've seen, you know, I really have had to work over the years to tweak and tweak and tweak the diets to help people get symptomatic relief. And, you know, I use several several diets, the, um, the SED, uh, the GAPS diet, uh, low FODMAP diet, sometimes cedar cyanide, and of course all of this generally falls into the category of paleo because it's low carb. Um, but that's where I really found adding in the low FODMAP diet with the SED diet as a base, and then you add in the low FODMAP diet, that might help. Um, and her name was Laura, right, who asked this question. That, that yeah. might help Laura. But she shouldn't, you know, her, her other thing was she wants to be able to eat regularly and, you know, have a flat stomach and be normal. That's for getting testing, find out, what, find out what's wrong and get treatment for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then do you have a particular company that you like to do your t- stool testing? I know there's so many options out there. You know, I was influenced by my friends at um, scdlifestyle.com. They, um, they took some trainings and learned about doing double stool testing. I, was, mm-hmm. I used to always, like when I went through naturopathic school, what we all learned about was the, the basic um, culturing uh, stool tests. And so I was doing that. But Oftentimes, they, they're very notorious for missing parasites. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. they would miss parasites, and I was frustrated with this. And so, um, so I switched over to using Metametrics Lab because they did DNA stool testing, and I thought, well, great. If I use DNA stool testing, then I'll solve the problem of missing, missing parasites on culture testing. And so I was going along happily with DNA testing, and then my friends told me that they had learned um, from some other physicians that they were using culture and DNA, and they were running two stool tests on all their patients, and that they were getting different results, and it was very convincing to me, um, and so I started doing it, and they recommended BioHealth Lab for culture, mm-hmm. so I started using BioHealth Lab for culture and Metametrics. Now they've been bought by Genova, so it's technically now it's Genova um, DNA st- stool testing, running them side by side, and, and it's true. I have never had... Um, the two stool tests show the exact same thing. And it makes sense to me. It's two different methods, and no test ever is perfect. So I I do it on all my patients. You know, I was worried about the cost and that people would balk at the cost. But honestly, by the time people get to me, I'm a specialist. They've usually been to a lot of other doctors. They really want to figure out what the heck's going on. They they all want the double stool test. They don't want anything missed anymore, you know. So... That's what I do. Um, I think there are other really good um, culturing labs. Um, Genova has a, has a good stool culture test. It's just what I've been using right now is um, BioHealth for Culture and Genova's DNA testing. Mm, got it. I've been using BioHealth oh. as well, and um, I'm really loving Doctors Data. I'm finding a lot of really great, and they, they're so great with their um, their bacteria cultures too. With Doctors Data, it's just so you know. It's extravagant, but I love it to see the, the you know, I feel like with BioHealth, that's a little bit limit on the cultures for the bacteria. I agree. You probably have noticed I that, agree. right? I totally agree. In fact, because uh, it on sensitivity testing, you know, at least Genova, or what was Metametrics, Genova has sensitivity testing. I also love right. Dr. Stanley. I love yeah. Dr. Stanley. Their, their reports are excellent, the, the way they yeah. report, and their sensitivity testing is the best. I may yeah. start switching over to them. I, I really do love them, and they, they're they great with showing, you know, um, SIGA. They show, you know, like all the different markers of inflammation in the gut. So you can kind of see, you know, IBS versus IBD. And, um, but, yeah, the sensitivity testing is so, so helpful. I really hope that um, when we learn in the future, when we learn about what, the, what Dr. Pimentel has found in mapping the SI flora, I hope there's some way for us to get sensitivity um, culturing and testing for the small intestine because that's our big problem mm. with SIBO. We can't get appropriate culturing because the, the endoscopes can only reach down to the first two or three feet um, mm-hmm. of the small intestine, you know, leaving like 15 feet untested. Um, that's why culture is not, is not a very good test for SIBO. I mean, if you find something there, great, but, but it, we're really at a, at, a, at a loss, at least I am as a specialist, because... I see such difficult cases, and we really need sensitivity testing because, you know, we try all these medicines, we try all these pharmaceuticals, we try all these herbals, and we just don't, we're just guessing. We don't know if what we're giving will kill the bacteria that's overgrown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what about treating SIBO? You've been doing, I mean, you're, you're a specialist with this particular condition, and I know we're talking about, you know, other kinds of digestive issues on this show, too, but I'm really curious 
you, you treat this a lot. It's one of the most common things that you treat. Have you found that there's um, like a particular approach you have with most patients for treating SIBO? Well, I I use like four treatment options, and and I give everybody diet. Everybody does pretty much now SED plus FODMAPs, um, or or at least SED. Sometimes I sometimes it's a little different based on their circumstance. Everybody gets diet, but um, but then I I discuss three treatment options for quickly reducing the bacteria with everybody. And what I do is just we we base what we're going to do on really what the person wants to do, their specific circumstance. So this, the, three, um, the three treatments are antibiotics, herbal antibiotics, and elemental diet. Elemental diet works really well for most people. It can reduce gas, um, very severe SIBO, very high gas levels, just in two weeks, more than, much, much more than herbal antibiotics and antibiotics can. But the mm. problem is most of the patients I see are underweight. Um, and they're underweight because either they're having direct um, malabsorption from their SIBO or because they have a very hard time eating because it, it's so painful or causes so many unpleasant symptoms, and so they're intentionally not eating that much. An elemental diet, um, just briefly what it is, is um, all the nutrients in powdered, pre-digested powdered form, mix it with water, and then you drink it, so you, it's like liquid nutrition, and the idea of being pre-digested is that it absorbs very quickly in the upper small intestine, feeding the person, and not getting to the bacteria, so the bacteria starve. It's very, very effective. But, but it, it causes about 10, maybe even 15 pounds of weight loss in the two to possibly three weeks a person does it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I am not able to do it with most of my patients because they don't have 10 pounds that they can afford to lose. Um, so unfortunately, I, I don't use that method as frequently as I would like to because it is really effective. It's quick. I mean, it's difficult. It's um, emotionally difficult, physically difficult to not be eating for two weeks and just be drinking mm-hmm. instead. Um, and people, you know, it, it's hard. And so a lot of people postpone it to um, to save as their last resort because they don't they don't want to undergo that. But right. relatively speaking, it's so it's so quick because. I see people with very severe cases and challenging cases, and it can take many, many, many rounds of antibiotics and herbal antibiotics, you know, months and months, and it gets frustrating. And if a person isn't underweight, I mean, often the quickest way to handle things is is elemental diet. But because of my patient population, I wind up doing a combination of antibiotics and herbal antibiotics. Most people choose antibiotics uh, because they're the best studied. You know, we don't have a lot of studies on the herbs. Um, I certainly have very good experience with them in my, in my many years of treating this condition, but um, the others are well studied. And um, oftentimes the herbs can, can um, give a bit worse die-off reactions than the antibiotics. And people are suffering so, so badly already, they don't really want to bring in any more of that, and they, they often will go for the antibiotics. Some people won't. Um, and then very often I have to use both because it's just going to take so many rounds of treatment. I need every tool in my toolbox. You know, I, I really am not afforded the luxury of just choosing one, say, philosophical approach. There are many naturopaths who don't believe in using pharmaceutical antibiotics, and they only want to use herbs and things like that, and, um, and that's fine. Everyone can make the choice that's right for them, but... Um, in, in the patient population I have treating their SIBO, I need every tool I can, I can use to get rid of their SIBO. Very challenging patients. So those are, those are the main things I use. And diet, I don't want to um, skip over that. Diet, especially when you tweak it and you work with someone who really knows, you know, how to help you get what's right for you, um, it, it has about anywhere between a 70, 75 um, symptom reduction rate, success rate. It's very, very successful. Uh, the, the problem with diet, though, is that many people need to be quite limited on what they can eat to get that symptomatic relief, and they don't want to go on living like that. They'd rather just get rid of the bacteria uh, more quickly so they can expand their diet, mm-hmm. and I support them in that. I think that's a good, good plan. Many people are too restricted in their nutrition, and we really need to do something else uh, so we can expand their diet. Sure. And the elemental diet, you said it's about two weeks, and that really is effective to get rid of that gas, that, that overgrowth, right? It is. It's, um, the, the protocol that Dr. Pimentel established, he studied this um, 
is you do it for two weeks, and then you, hopefully you have access to in-house testing. That means at your doctor's office or at a hospital or at a lab, at a facility. You go in on the 14th day or very near to it and, um, and, and take the breath test. Take the lactulose breath test and um, get the result that day. You know, either the um, doctor authorizes the lab technician to give you the result or they call you that day. And that lets you know if it was successful. If it was successful, if you have a negative test, you can begin eating. And, you know, you, you were successful with a two-week course. For those that are not successful at two weeks, then they sh- um, the recommendation is to go on for one more week to a third, through a third week. Um, and then they can test at that point and hopefully that they were successful then. So let's say that it's gone. Is there a particular diet they have to continue to stick with, or can they just go back to having maybe like just like a healthy, you know, kind of paleo diet or just kind of a balanced diet? They should um, They should do a preventative diet. What I do with my patients is I keep them on SED or SED plus FODMAPs. I keep them on that for anywhere for one month to three months after the SIBO is eradicated, just to allow all the tissues to heal. Um, you know, but there's a wonderful preventative diet that Dr. Pimentel has created called the Cedar sinai diet, and he only created this for prevention. It's not meant for treatment. It's, it's meant for afterwards. It's just reduced carbohydrates to, um, so that you don't encourage regrowth. Um, so those guidelines can be looked at. Probably most of the people that listen to you, they're, they're either on paleo or very familiar with it. That works too. The, the general concept is just to keep the carbs somewhat reduced um, in prevention. There's been um, two studies done on leaky gut or increased intestinal permeability with SIBO. And um, it's very, very interesting. Both of those studies found that once the SIBO was eradicated, they retested leaky gut one month later, and they didn't do anything. They didn't give them any special diet, and they didn't give them any leaky gut healing supplements. And um, in one study, 75% of the people who had leaky gut, their leaky gut was healed. And in the other study, 100% were healed. So Mm -hmm. what that really shows us is when you remove the cause, the body heals on its own. And the way I like to think about leaky gut is in this circumstance at least, is that it's like a cut on the skin. I mean, it's not actually a cut, but it's like that, and that, you know, our skin, our body heals cuts. And so, um, you know, ultimately for many people, they may not really need to do anything to allow that healing to happen. What I really think of the preventative diet for is so that you don't encourage regrowth. Just don't pile down the carbs, you know, that feed the bacteria again. So those are, those are the options. Um, you know, and ultimately... No one really knows what the exact amount of time the best strategy is. None of these things have been studied with large populations. We're all just doing our best clinically to figure it out. Mm-hmm. I love this stuff. This is such a nice review for me, too, so I appreciate this. So thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so fun to talk about. I know, right? For such nerds. I love it. Um, okay, so another question. This is from Kyle. He wants to know... Um, the interaction between serotonin in the small intestines and the serotonin in the brain. So just curious of the connection with that. Is it via the vagus nerve? Like how is it connected? He is curious about that. Well, I don't know all the specifics. I've, I've read some papers on this, and I don't have it memorized. But Because uh-huh. um, that gets pretty intense. What I can tell you mm-hmm. is that there are many different serotonin receptors in the intestines, and they're numbered. And um, some of the ones that are the, the most commonly known about are 5-HT. 5-HT is the abbreviation for serotonin, uh, 5-HT3, 5-HT4. And there have been many drugs targeted for these receptors um, and because they can influence motility. So they can influence constipation and diarrhea. Um, unfortunately, the, the drugs that were targeted at this for constipation had some other problems, and they were removed from the market. Um, although there are some, there, there are some new ones being um, being made that are much safer. And there's also one um, that's in use in Canada and the United Kingdom for many years, not yet approved here, unfortunately, because it's proven to be very safe. 
um, that, that also targets uh, the serotonin receptors. Um, but, you know, I think it's quite specialized. The, the serotonin receptors that I'm speaking of in the intestine, they're not, they really are with their own functions like motility. Those exact receptors, it's not proper to think of those like the serotonin receptors in the brain that are going to affect our mood per se. There are different receptors for that. It, it gets very specialized and technical, which is why I don't have it all memorized. And you know, <laughs> all these numbers of these receptors. So, um, you know, I was hoping when I first learned about this, like, oh, we can just take 5-HTP and get these great effects. But it doesn't seem to work like that. It seems to, to need a bit more specifics with the substances we're taking, such as these drugs that they've, um, that they've been working on, to get the right effect without any negative effects and, you know, to make sure you're hitting what receptor. Mm-hmm. So that's about all I can say without, you know, looking, looking things up. I think there's a lot more that needs to be discovered with, with these mechanisms and the connection with it, but, I, but one thing I can see from my experience in practice is healing the gut, it majorly affects the mood, right? I mean, anxiety, depression. I mean, I'm sure you see this all the time too, right? Absolutely. And when a person gets a digestive symptom, it massively affects their mood. You know, when right. somebody gets bloated or something like that, they usually their mood plummets. And, you know, I experienced this as a patient myself because, um, you know, when I would get bloated or when I would have digestive problems, it would affect my mood. And I'd, I'd go talk to people about this, doctors, and they would say, well, um, you know, you, you, you probably just had a bad mood and, and then you just wound up having digestive problems. And, it, you know, there was like an inability to understand that it goes both ways. It's like, or like people would say, well, you must have depression and so then your digestion is just affected or something. like. I'm like, no, I was feeling fine and then I ate something that didn't affect me well. I got bloated and then I got depressed, you know. <laughs> so... And I wasn't just depressed because, you know, of some psychological thing. It's a real physiological thing. So good, good point. I mean, these these are real, um, you know, pathways that go back and forth between the intestines and the brain. I just unfortunately can't detail them all out for people, but it's real, definitely real. Yeah. Also, a lot of studies on um, probiotics um, have shown help with depression. I mean, straight up a treatment for depression is various probiotics. And that's also, um, you know, anyone interested in this subject, Dr. Kimmel McBride's book on the GAP side is fascinating. Of of course, she's um, focused a bit more on autism, but really she talks all about um, the gut-brain connection and mood, mood and cognition related to having disordered digestion. It's fascinating. So, so fascinating. I'm glad you brought that that, uh, topic up as as, uh, probiotics. And um, are there any particular ones that you're typically using with patients? Do you rotate them out? What are what are some of your uh, preferences with that? Yeah, I um, I I often rotate them. I think it's a great idea for people to just try different probiotics until they find one that they can actually tell helps them, and then they can stick with that one um, because everyone's going to need something different. But mm-hmm. um, some of my favorite ones are um, I like Align, which um, which is Bifidus infantis. And Align has been um, studied very well. It, it shows, shows up really well in studies. Um, and I don't know if we've talked about this before, but it, it was a hard one for me to swallow, so to speak, because um, it's, it's a commercial product. It's not, it's not really like an alternative medicine product. You buy it in Walgreens and drugstores mm-hmm. and things like that. And if you look at the ingredients on the back of it, um, there's some sugar in it. There's some titanium dioxide. There's some ingredients that people like us don't like. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, they're in minute amounts. But the thing of it is, is that it studies so well, and I, I kept hearing from patients that would come from other gastroenterologists that it really helped them. So, you know, I didn't want to be snooty, you know, so I, I gave it a go uh, with my patients, and lo and behold, it has really helped a lot of people. So I, that's one of my favorites to recommend. And by the way, because I didn't like the base ingredients, I wound up finding a source of um, just pure business infantis. A line is patented, you know, so certain strains are patented. Um, and so I tried that in my patients, and for goodness sakes, they didn't feel it worked as well as the patented line. So, you know, and these are people who, who wanted this more clean product. So there must be something to that particular strain. So that's one. Um, and then um, I, you know, in the people who are familiar with the work of Lane Gottschall she, and the specific carbohydrate diet, she um, advised against the use of bifidus um, and only lacto- lactobacillus and um, streptococcus that's in yogurt. 
And I don't agree with that. Uh, I haven't seen that proven true with my patients. I think there's always going to be an individual where that may be true for, because everyone's different. But in general, um, Bifidus does very well for most of the people that I see. And so um, I like multi-strain formulas. Um, one of my favorites right now is by um, the retail version of it is called Renew Life, and the professional version of it is called Advanced Naturals, and it's their 100 billion. I think it's called Ultra Potent, but it's 100 billion. It's got some really good lactobacillus and um, bifidus strains. Um, bifidus has studied very well for IBS in particular, um, some s- several of the strains and certain lactobacillus strains, and they're featured heavily in this this 100 billion um, product. But there are so many good probiotics. Um, What I can say about probiotics in general and the patients I've seen is that clinically, as I I watched everyone taking probiotics, trying probiotics, some people would report they couldn't handle probiotics. What I noticed over about four years of practicing heavily in GI um, is that people got about 25% benefit uh, success or relief from probiotics. You know, it's like a little bit. It's the kind of help where you may not notice it, but then if you stop taking it or you run out of it and say, oh, well, that didn't really do anything for me, you might notice it then. You might say, you know what, I think, I think I felt a little better when I was on it. You know, it's like just a little extra help. Um, or maybe if you ran out and then you started taking it again, you go, oh, yeah, now I, now I can tell a little bit. Sometimes people can't really tell. Um, so it's you know, not not that much. Um, and interestingly, I was I was doing a lot of research on probiotics, trying to read everything I could um, on PubMed. And I found a study of a huge population study that found almost the exact same thing that I see clinically. Mm-hmm. Somewhere around you know 23, 24 percent success um, in in patients when they're on like the IBS kind of patients when they're on probiotics. So helps some, um, but not tons. Now then again, there are a handful of people that I've seen that had that are like outliers. So there's a handful of people that have really been aggravated by probiotics. And I don't think in in everybody's case, like these people's case, that it's die off because probiotics um, they secrete antibiotic chemicals. Uh, one is called bacteriocin, and so they can actually kill um, other bacteria in your intestines, one of the reasons why they're so good for us. And so people can get an actual die-off reaction from probiotics. But hmm. putting that aside, I'm pretty adept at figuring that out with my patients. There are some people that probiotics are not right for them. They're not a match. They really aggravate them. And then all the way on the other end, there's a handful of people that have had miracle healings with probiotics. They took a certain probiotic, it's different for each person, which one it was, and they are miraculously, you know, in a miracle way, cured. And like mm-hmm. everything's fixed, you know. So that's very rare. These two outlying um, types of people. Most people fall in the middle, where it helps them. And just another thing I want to say about probiotics, as it relates to SIBO, is that um, people are certainly very concerned about putting too many bacteria down there in the form of probiotics into their small intestine if they already have a backup or an overgrowth. And that's a very valid concern. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm I'm not that worried about it simply because there have been about three studies on um, using probiotics as the only treatment for SIBO, so in place of antibiotics or herbal antibiotics. And they were they were pretty successful. So it didn't seem to make them worse. You know, it's something that's commonly put out on the Internet, like, oh, if you SIBO, probiotics will make you worse. I, I can say that that doesn't, doesn't line up with my clinical experience or, mm. or these studies. Know, or these studies. So um, it sure makes sense from a theory perspective, but probiotics have so many things that they can do beneficially, it seems that that, that fear is overcome by their actual mechanisms of action. One of their mechanisms of action in some studies is to increase motility, actually, or affect motility in a positive way. And with SIBO, the small intestine motility is slowed, not necessarily the large intestine, just the small intestine. And probiotics may may be increasing that. I don't know for sure. But um, And then uh, before I finish this whole topic of probiotics, <laughs> um, <laughs> one last thing is that I know that in the functional medicine world, um, many practitioners are worried about um, delactic acidosis. So some acidophilus strains of bacteria can produce D-lactic acid. Um, certainly in the GAP community, they're quite concerned about that because it has neurological cognitive effects. 
Um, D-lactic acidosis is a real thing um, that happens. Um, I can say that I don't generally see that happening in my patients, but, um, but some practitioners are concerned about it, and so they don't want to use acidophilus-like strains um, or any, any strains that can produce D-lactic acid. Um, but what you can do in that case is you can test for that with a urine organic acid test to find out if your particular patient is having that problem. Um, there are uh, some practitioners who don't even want to worry, worry about it at all, and so then they take people off probiotics that... Um, that are, have lactobacillus strains and put them on more soil bacteria strains, that's fine. Um, I don't have too much experience. I have limited experience with the soil bacteria. Um, there's very different, many different types of strains that are soil bacteria, but one of the main ones is bacillus. Bacillus subtilis is a soil bacteria. Um, early on when I was experimenting with the soil bacteria for the SIBO patients, um, I didn't find it, you know, had an advantage per se over the others. And often they're more expensive, so I just went with with the normal uh, normal formulas. So anyway, I've been talking nonstop, and I'm sure you have all kinds of comments you want to make. No, I'm just like soaking it in like a sponge. It's it's awesome. So um, FOS uh, is that something that have you that you found uh, can worsen SIBO in a probiotic? Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, I forgot to, to mention that qualifier. Oh, goodness. Um, so, so many probiotics are sold with prebiotics in them. And prebiotics are food for bacteria. Um, their fiber foods are oligosaccharides. And so FOS is an oligosaccharide. It's fructo-oligosaccharide. That's what FOS stands for. And it's intensely, intensely aggravating for SIBO. Uh, it may not be um, aggravating for all digestive conditions, um, in fact, it may help some. But if, um, if there's an overgrowth of bacteria or if there are too many gas-producing bacteria, it's likely to be aggravating, and any prebiotic is likely to be aggravating. It's one of the great frustrations I found in the, um, in the supplement industry. It's very hard to find probiotics without prebiotics, and you really have to read those labels. So the other things that you would want to look for, would be, so FOS, and then you'd want to look for GOS, that's um, galacto-oligosaccharide, MOS, mannose-oligosaccharide, inulin, chicory, um, arabinogalactan. Those are the main uh, prebiotics. I don't think I'm missing any. Am I missing any? Um, I, think I think those are the main ones. Now, it's, it's kind of yeah. tricky, though, right, because you want to give the, the bacteria food to stay alive, and yet that's something that would worsen it. So how do you deal with that, you know, that balance? Well, there's two things. One is if you're eating plant foods at all, fruits, vegetables, nuts, um, you're feeding your bacteria. And mm -hmm. second, so, you know, like you'd have to just do a straight protein and fat diet. And even then, bacteria can use amino acids and, um, and fat as well. That's not really their primary fuel source, but they can. But second, um, bacteria are adapted to live off of our own mucus in our intestines, our, our glycocalyx lining of our, our mucus lining on our intestines. Um, many, many research papers about that. So um, even if you just ate protein and fat, they could still stay alive by just living off our own intestinal, um, you know, mucus. So hmm. it's not like you're, you're really ever going to totally get rid of them. I don't think that's quite possible. Um, but it's, it still is an interesting question. You know, how do you create the right balance? Nobody really knows. We're all just trying to figure this out. One thing's for sure, though. If you have SIBO or an obvious overgrowth of gas-producing bacteria, um, you need to get rid of them. You don't need to worry about feeding anything at that point. Any, any sort of bacterial food, it, it doesn't just feed. You know, there's this myth out there that, it's not just a myth. It's actually in the technical definition of prebiotic, but I disagree with the definition. Um, that prebiotics are food that only that only feed beneficial bacteria, and that just isn't true. You can find research papers that show that they, you know, that they feed other things. It's a nice concept, and it's that concept of oh, different bacteria are adapted to eat different foods, and so maybe just the the probiotic good bacteria are adapted to to eat FOS and not the bad ones. But in fact, that just isn't true. So, mm -hmm. um, so when you use those prebiotics, they'll feed, they'll feed the, um, the overgrowth as well as the, the good bacteria. So um, not a good idea until you get everything under control. And, and even then, if you're a person that's really had a problem with overgrowth, I don't know that prebiotics are your best bet. I'll just eat, eat plant foods and let it be mm -hmm. at that. Mm. So interesting. 
Okay, this question is from Holly, and she says, since I was young, I've always gone to the bathroom every other day. Everyone always says that you need to go every day. I have to take magnesium to go daily. Is there really a rule about frequency? Is this maybe just my norm? What a great question. Um, I could go either way on this one. I, I mean, if she is healthy, if she generally all feels healthy, um, her tests are healthy, then it might just be her way. I mean, she mm-hmm. could manipulate, try and manipulate it by uh, by increasing fiber. Um, but, you know, it might be all right. I, I, I think it depends. You know, when we've looked at different cultures around the world, cultures that eat a lot of fiber, peoples that eat a lot of fiber, go more than once a day. Um, but it might, it might be all right. And I, I'm not so sure she should manipulate it with magnesium unless she really feels much better and she goes, mm-hmm. she goes every day. Now, what about, every day you, yeah, do you know about cultures that don't really eat much fiber if they go less frequently and, you know, have abundant health? I mean, what do you think about, what are your thoughts on that? I don't know. I can't think of an example right off the top of my head because all we ever hear about are the ones that eat tons of fiber because, you know, these these cultures are brought up to show us how we need to be eating more fiber, you know. Mm -hmm. So I don't actually know about the other ones. Um, Do you yourself know? Have you ever heard of any of these cultures? Well, you know, I mean, you've heard of, like, the Maasai of Africa, and, you know, they're having mostly, you know, like, um, mostly animal proteins. From what I've seen, my limited knowledge with this, um, I just wonder about, you know, cultures like that that are eating those kinds of foods, or, or even the Inuit, you know. I mean, they're eating mostly fat, right? I wonder about that as well. Yeah. You know, I don't know what the stool frequency, the bowel movement frequency is of those cultures, but you don't need fiber to be able to have a bowel movement. Fat stimulates bowel movements, and Mm -hmm. bile stimulates bowel movements, which comes out with fat, but it comes out anyway in digestion. Um, And then there's just neurological processes. There's... um, um, they call them not chemoreceptors, but oh, baroreceptors that um, sense distension that can also help stimulate bowel movements. There's all sorts of reflexes. I mean, you know, you don't. It's not only dependent on fiber. So um, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think we have to go bonkers on that. Um, yeah. To think. That, yeah, my you know, thought for Holly would be. It. Yeah, I mean, I think if Holly's feeling great and she has energy and you know everything else is looking pretty good and she just goes every other day and I mean maybe that's her norm. Yeah, I could be. I don't yeah, think that sounds maybe. like this. I think it's when you go to the third day, that starts classifying you as having constipation. That's extremely, extremely common. When you're every third day, that's constipation. Many people yeah. are like that. They think that's normal, and I would not say that's normal. I think every other day could be. Yeah, totally. Okay, now, last topic is looking at gut health and weight gain. Um, you know, I think this is such a, I mean, obviously, me being in San Diego, it's such a huge you know, focused on here is to be as as fit as possible, right? Um, and I think a lot of times people, when they're trying to get in shape, they aren't looking at this as a potential uh, contributor. So what are your thoughts with this, your experience in looking at, you know, gut health and its effects on weight gain or body composition? Okay, so you mean for people who are struggling with too much weight, right? Exactly, yes, the opposite of what you spoke about earlier. Yeah, you know, I don't get to see these people very often. Um, But there is some very interesting research linked with certain types of bacteria um, being associated with obesity. And and that is because those bacteria, and so this would just be normal bacteria that can colonize the intestine. And um, it's been shown that people who have more weight on them tend to have one type, and people who are thinner have a different type. And so the concept here is that... um, the bacteria and the people who, are, who have more weight, who are more overweight, they're better at harvesting calories and food, and um, they, they provide the host with, with more nutrition. And so then they tend to hold more weight. I think that we're in the you know, early stage of our understanding of this. Um, what, what has been shown in animal studies is that if you put this bacteria into um, a thin person that they can they can get larger. So, you know, there is a really good correlation here. Um, now, I haven't read it. I thought that there hadn't been a study done yet on um, putting the, the thin bacteria into the overweight person and did they lose weight. But somebody told me that has been done improved, but I can't say that I know that for my own self. I haven't, I haven't seen that research yet. So, so that's a pretty interesting 
pretty interesting concept. It, it makes you start thinking about fecal microbiota transplantation and that this might be one of the managements for, you know, for weight. Mm. Very, very interesting idea. Um, but, you know, other than that, um, there, there isn't any direct correlation. Um, I have certainly seen, I have seen a few uh, patients who have struggled to lose weight um, and they have SIBO. I mean, there are certainly people of all sizes that have SIBO. Um, and when they go on, uh, on a specific carbohydrate diet or one of the very low carbohydrate diets, um, it very much helps their weight. And they're thrilled. Um, they're just thrilled, you know, just going on and on about how, how happy they are with the weight loss. Of course, this is, you know, what I'm sure you've talked so much about on your show with just the general paleo diets, um, helping people lose weight. But I will also say, that I have seen people who don't lose weight on a specific carbohydrate diet. And in those people, what seemed to be going on is that they had been on hormone replacement therapy um, and that it was too much. It had built up in their body and had overdosed. This is so common. Um, you know, I think we've, we've both learned about this with topical um, cream hormones. They, they build up and store in the fat. And um, so then the dosing is erratic. And so when those people then went through um, a program to pull those hormones out of their body, lo and behold, they were able to start losing weight. So, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's an obvious one answer for every person. Yep, totally agree with that. Awesome. Okay, I actually have one last question I wanted to make sure I ask, and this is um, just to continue on SIBO briefly and... Um, if you're aware of anyone being helped or cured of SIBO by taking chlorine dioxide internally, just want to know your thoughts on that. I've actually was asked that um, another time this week about that. Chlorine uh, dioxide. I, I am not, I don't know anyone. I, I have not heard of anyone. I, don't, I haven't read a case or seen anyone personally um, mm-hmm. where that has been a cure. Did you say that you have someone who is coming on your show about that? No, I had a patient ask me about that today. I don't have a, I don't have any experience with that. It's not something I've used for SIBO, so I just thought if anyone knew about that, it's probably you. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I ha- unfortunately I haven't heard of a case. I um I had one person who was interested in doing it, um, uh-huh. sent me some information on it, but I couldn't make a comment about about it because um I hadn't I don't have any experience with it, and I was wanting to hear what happened with this person. They were just, you know, doing this on their own and wanted to know if I, if I knew anything about it. But unfortunately, I didn't hear back, so I don't mm-hmm. know. More to be discovered. Okay, okay great. Well, well, um, I'm, oh, sorry. Well, I was sorry. just going to say, I, I, I keep my mind open to everything because um, I need all the tools I can, I can have and use to help these people. Well, that's exactly why I wanted you to be on the show is because you're always – wanting to learn more and improve on things. And I knew that even just having you back to talk about SIBO again, there's going to be a lot of new information. So I, I love that about you. So it's, it's great. Um, Thanks, Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, let's give our listeners like one or two or three takeaways. Like what are, you know, for people listening, what's like the one biggest thing they can do to improve their gut health? And if you have more than one, maybe a couple. You know, just some real clear takeaways for people. Well, God, that's hard because, you know, <laughs> what, what is it that they're suffering from and what's wrong? You know, I, I like to be methodical and figure out what it is. And it can be different for different people. Um, I'll say this one thing um, that could be very general for people. So long as blood sugar is not a major, major confounding issue, I would say one thing people can do to help their digestion is to not snap between meals um, and leave Minimum three, if not four hours between meals. That, that's very good. I, I don't think humans were designed digestively for constant, constant snacking. And um, particularly if a person can wait four hours um, between meals with only taking water, that's a great help to digestion. It, it, it's the proper cycle of things. And then the other thing would be um, to eat on a, a regular schedule. Uh, because the body gets primed, the insulin hormone gets primed to eat at the same time every day. It expects when the meal will come. And so to eat on a schedule, you know, um, of course, you know all about this. You've probably discussed this so much on your show, but um, there's different types of stress. You know, there's eustress, which is positive stress, and that would be like, you know, exercise, yoga, and things like that. Um, good challenges that make us grow stronger. And then there's detrimental stress, which everyone thinks of when they think of stress that makes us weaker. 
And I would say moving your meals around all at different times is is a negative stress. It's it's not a positive one. So just very much generally, eating at the same time day to day and not snacking um, would be very beneficial for digestion. But once again, with that caveat, if the blood sugar is not under control, that's not going to be a strategy that will work in terms of the no snacking, and that has to come first. Mm-hmm. Amen, sister. It's awesome stuff. <laughs> Life-changing information, and uh, I really appreciate you coming back on the show. Do you have any parting words before we let you go? No, we've said enough. I just am so grateful that you've had me on your show again, and it's so nice to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. And I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, all the great work you guys are throwing together for the SIBO um, Symposium. So excited for that. And I think it's going to really reach a lot of people and help with a lot of these problems people are having. So it's just really life-changing information you guys are getting out there. So it's great, great stuff. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to catch up more at different conferences, maybe Paleo FX, maybe Ancestral Health Symposium, maybe naturopathic conferences. There's a lot of things we can connect with. So looking forward to all those opportunities to see you again. <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. Me too. And by the way, before we go, I have to say that you uh, gave me the computer link to your show and up comes the most beautiful picture of you in a gorgeous dress with an amazing necklace. Where were you when that picture was taken? That was at the farmer's market, my favorite place in the whole world, so I was just glowing there. <laughs> you were glammed up. I thought you were at a red carpet event. I'm telling you, you look like a million bucks. Then again, you always look like a million bucks. Gorgeous picture. Oh. Making me blush. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good for my ego. (laughs) (laughs) That's you, (laughs) Jack. Thanks. I appreciate it. Well, Dr. C. Becker, Allison, thanks so much for coming back on. Have a wonderful night, and uh, I'm sure we'll catch up real soon. Take care, Lauren. You too. Bye. All right, you guys, that's our show. So grateful for all your listens. Thanks for the continued support, you guys. And um, if you miss any of the previous shows, you can always check them out at drlaurennoel.com and get caught up with that. And I appreciate you guys for leaving comments on the iTunes podcast. Um, just makes me really happy to see that. So thanks for that. Have a wonderful rest of your week, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.